Um, well, good morning, second service. You're my people. Not, we are second service people. We're usually like back, that area. That's my, also my people, people within the people. Um, my wife, Davio, and I have been going to Hillcrest for a while now. I think we have a fun photo of us. And uh, yeah, as Bill mentioned, I also work with UCM CCF out at Whatcom. And uh, I work with a fun team of Kristen and uh, our new teammate coming this fall, Farah. And so, uh, yeah, this will be my fourth year, and I just love it. Um, it is such a privilege to be here and to share with you uh, for lots of reasons, um, but there's one in particular that I wanted to share with you, um, how Hillcrest played a role in Daviel and my early relationship. And so Daviel and I, we were both students at Western, involved with CCF, and at some point my junior year, I was like, she's kind of cute kind of want to get to know her a little bit. And, uh, and so I talked it over with my mentor, James Jr., and I was like, hey, James, so kind of liking this girl a little bit. You know, what do you think I should do? And, and he asked me, like, well, Joey, like, if you asked her on a date, would she be surprised by that? And I was like, well, yeah, I don't know her that well, you know. So, so I was like, okay, well, i got to figure out a way to, like, get to know her a little bit before I ask her on a date. And so, um, so I started brainstorming, and, and I was like, shoot, this is going to be difficult because she is super busy. She was in the middle of like her senior year, double majoring. She was a small group leader and working part-time. And so I was like, this is quite the challenge. And, uh, and so I thought to myself, well, let's see. I don't have a car, so that's going to be tough. Um, still trying to figure out a church. I do know she goes to Hillcrest. She has a car. I'll ask her for rides to church. And so I don't know why. Like, I asked her, and for whatever reason, she said yes. Um, she always made sure that her sister Katrina was in the car to monitor our conversations. Um, and so, Hillcrest, you didn't know this, but you played a huge role in our getting together, and now we're here, you know? So you can, I guess I owe you a thank you. Uh, yeah, but in all seriousness, we really do love this community, and I'm proud to say, like, that I belong to Hillcrest. Um, and I enjoy stories like that because, you know, I could just tell you a list of things about me, um, but I think stories even more so reveal uh, a little bit more about us, even if it's not in the best of light. Um, but I love looking, uh, I love that God also loves to share stories to reveal himself. Um, and so we're going to look at, a, continue our study in Second Kings today and look at a story that I think reveals a, a pretty incredible characteristic of God. Um, so we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, um, but before we begin, I want to give you some context. So back in Kings, first 20, first Kings chapter 21, we find this encounter between uh, the prophet Elijah and King Ahab, and basically Ahab is this pretty evil king, and uh, he makes some pretty poor choices, and so Elijah is like, dude, I have to, like, your, your line, your lineage is going to end, and basically curses him. And so there's this overall question from then on, when will the house of Ahab come to an end? And so this kind of hovers over the, the stories that come to follow. And so we fast forward to 2 Kings, chapter 6, and there's a war that's broken out between King Benadad of Aram and Israel. And what the king of Aram decides to do is to besiege Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. And so basically they, they surround the city, and this siege 
causes this huge famine. And it gets so bad that people are, are eating pigeon manure and they're buying it for crazy prices. And for those that don't afford it, they're even resorting to cannibalism. And so the king of uh, Samaria, the king of Israel, is just like at his wit's end. You know, he's like wondering, maybe this is the end. And so he blames Elisha, the prophet of Israel, and sends someone to kill him. And so that's where we'll pick up in the story. We'll begin in 2 Kings chapter 6, 32. We'll have it up on the slides. Um, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 32. It says, Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look when the messenger comes. Shut the door and hold it against him, which I just think is kind of hilarious. Like, that's what I do when I play hide-and-seek, and I don't, like, want someone, but they're, like, sending someone to kill you, and you're, the only thing that you can think of is, oh, quick, shut the door, you know. Anyways, is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him. While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. So there's plenty, he couldn't explain, shut the door quick enough, I guess. Um, so they make it to the house, and the king says, the disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. And so Elisha says, hey, things are going to get better. Which is good news, but he doesn't like share like how it's going to happen or anything. And so the officer doubts Elisha's prophecy. And Elisha's like, dude, you don't want to doubt me. You're going to see this, but you won't be able to partake in any of it. And, uh, and so, but at this point, this makes me excited. Because I, you know, I've been in this series of 1st and 2nd Kings, and I've seen the stories of the Old Testament some of these prophets have gotten to do some pretty sweet things, you know? So I'm like, all right, Elisha, like, how are you going to do this? Maybe bring down some fire like your dude Elijah. You know, maybe you got some Moses up your sleeve, call him some plagues. Maybe it's something new. Maybe you're going to rain down some Chipotle, you know? Like, what are you going to do? You know, Elisha, I'm pretty pumped about how you're going to get us out of here. And, uh, and so let's keep reading in verse 3 and see what happens. Uh, verse 3, Now there are four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. This is like one of your classic lose-lose and probably-lose situations, you know? Like, hey, we go here, we die, we die. Maybe, we'll, but we'll probably die, you know. Very rational lepers, you know. Um, so verse 5, at dusk they got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. So they show up thinking, expecting this great army and stuff, and then everybody's gone. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. 
So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys, and they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. In other words, they think like Israel has sent in the big guns. You know, no, not the Egyptians and the Hittites. These are the major players at the time. And the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver and gold and clothes and went off and they hid them. And then they returned and entered another tent. It took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, wait, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and they called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there. Not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys. And the tents left just as they were. And so the gatekeeper shouted the news and was reported within the palace. And so what, what follows is the king ends up just double-checking to make sure that what this story is true. And sure enough, the lepers were right. And so just as Elisha prophesied, the flour and the barley were sold uh, at much cheaper prices. Um, and the officer that doubted ends up seeing all this but doesn't get to eat. He gets trampled at the city gates. Now, I just think this is a ridiculous story. You know, I mean, seriously, for one, Elisha gives this prophecy on how God is going to turn things around, and then he just disappears. Like, we don't see him in the rest of the chapter. There's no fire that comes raining down, no epic matchup between the prophets, no plagues, no chipotle, no wars that take place. Instead, you have what sounds like an army, but is really four men with leprosy. And when I think about the fact that this is God's story, that he ordained and he wrote this thing, I wonder why would he take the time to include these four men with leprosy? Because these are the outcasts of society, the diseased. Why are they the ones in the center of his rescue plan? Why are they the ones who get to come back and communicate victory? I don't know about you, but I can grow numb to Bible stories sometimes because I hear stories of lepers and Samaritans and tax collectors, and they can lose some of the shock value for me, but I don't want us to miss the statement that is being made. That God will use anybody in his story, and he especially delights in using the unexpected. He especially delights in using the unexpected. There's no reason for four lepers to be in the center of the story. They're the outcasts. They're the weak. They have nothing to contribute. And they're not even the best of the lepers. They found the camp and they took silver and gold and they had a party and then they only told the good news because they didn't want to die. They're not even lepers with pure motives. But God delights in using the unexpected. We have a student at Whatcom named Ryan. I think I have a picture. I got permission to share this story, but didn't get permission for the picture, but it's too late now. Um, but I met Ryan a couple years ago, and as you can tell, Ryan's kind of a taller guy, but he's uh, kind of a little bit more shy, a little bit uh, quieter at times. And uh, 
You wouldn't believe it in that picture, but he is. Uh, and uh, when I first met Ryan, uh, he started coming to our small group and stuff, and, and I invited him to be a small group leader with us the following year. And uh, something we like to do with our small group leaders is take them out and do evangelism on campus. And, uh, and so Ryan, being the shy guy, I approached him and was like, hey, Ryan, you know, like, we're going to go out and we're going to do some conversational evangelism today. You know, we're going to ask some strangers questions about Jesus and faith and different things. And he just, like, turned white. And, like, I think he shrunk a few inches, like, started sweating. And, like, what have you asked me to do? And, uh, but he did it. We went out. And I don't, I don't know if he said a word, but just going out was enough for him. And uh, later on that year, he was at a point in his life where he was really trying to figure out, like, oh, I'm not sure really what I want to do, where I want to be. And uh, so he decided to stop taking classes for a while. And we said, so Ryan, like, so you're still a leader with us. You know, how are you going to get people to your small group if you're never meeting any new people in your classes? And so we brainstormed a little bit. And sure enough, we were like, well, probably need to do some evangelism. And, uh, and so we, we agreed. And perhaps begrudgingly, like every week, he would start doing evangelism. And uh, this past year, he went on our spring break mission trip called SSI. And uh, they went out to Wenatchee Valley College, where half of the time was doing outreach. And when he came back, he sent me this email. And he was like, Joey, 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 I totally had this idea while I was on SSI. And I was like, yeah, what's up? And uh, he said, what if I get other people to do evangelism? It's like, that is a brilliant idea, you know, like totally. And, uh, and so he had this whole thing planned where he made an announcement at our CCF service. And he got like seven or eight students to sign up, many of them never doing it before. And he sent them this email that was like all the things that he had learned about doing evangelism. And he even like shared like, hey, maybe if you're nervous or something, here's a picture of a cat that's making a funny face to help ease your nerves a little bit. <laughs> help me, you know? And so, and uh, one time this past quarter, I walked around campus and I saw two students. And I was like, hey guys, how's it going? And they're like, Joey, 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 we can't talk right now. We're doing evangelism. And, uh, which is just like, I never would have thought that meeting this student three years prior, that not only he would be doing evangelism, that he would be inviting others into this. And this fall, he's taking his first Japanese class because Jesus has called him to be a missionary in Japan. And so even with his life, he said, Jesus, I am walking into this sphere. I am, I am going to follow you. God delights using the unexpected. This is God's character, using the nervous, the ones that shrink, to bring about his story. And we see this in the character of Jesus. Jesus, born into a poor family, began his life as a refugee. He even was from a place of Nazareth where they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then he spends most of his time hanging out with the unexpected people. His disciples were thieves and some who spoke funny. He invited young children to come to him. He stood up for countless women and he shared meals with the hated tax collectors. You know, I think our Bibles need to have a slogan. You know how like Nike has, just do it? I think our Bibles need to have a slogan that says, expect the unexpected. Because this is the character of our God. 
He can't help but use the outcast, the young, the old, the weak, the poor, the sick, and the lost. God delights in using the unexpected. And so what does this mean for you and for me? I think these stories are an invitation. An invitation to see us as contributors to God's overall story here on earth. And of course, how that plays out for each of us will probably look different. You know, maybe you're a parent and you, you're here and you just feel exhausted by the day-to-day life and you wonder what kind of impact you're making. And I think God wants you to hear that there are things that you have said to your children, things you have done that will shape their lives forever. And as a father, God, he is proud of your faithfulness in their stories. You have a role right now. Maybe you're here, you're older, you're a grandparent, and you live in a society that worships the young and the new. And so you find yourself getting pushed out into the margins of our society, wondering if you even have a role left. And God wants you to know that he is not done with you. You have no idea the power your words still have. You have no idea the power your words have on your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors. Your name is still written in God's story. Or maybe you're here, you have a disability, and you wonder, how am I ever going to be used in God's story? And I think God wants you to know that your perseverance can be used as inspiration to others. And he wants people to know that maybe you feel limited, but he is an unlimited God. Maybe you're single, and you wonder... How am I supposed to make an impact until I get married? And I think God wants you to know that you have a purpose and a plan now. I want you to be an example to the people around you that you can find fulfillment in Jesus right now. It doesn't take someone else. Maybe you're here and you're skeptical of this whole Christian thing. I believe that God has a role for you even in your skepticism. That maybe your questions are going to help others. Maybe even Christians. Maybe even help them in our understanding of God and understanding of life. So don't hesitate to bring up your questions and your doubts. Maybe you're here because your parents brought you. Or you came here because you like a girl. God wants you to know he can use you no matter your motive. He can use you in his story. As we prepare to close, I'd like for us to think through a couple questions. I'd like for us to sort of ask God these questions in our response. Number one, God, is there something that is keeping me from participating in your story? Is there anything that's keeping me from participating in your story? Number two, what role would you like me to play? Jesus, is there a role that you want me to step into? Maybe it's one of these roles, or maybe it's something else. But Lord, what, where do you want me to be? What character shall I be in your story? And I encourage you, as, as we respond in singing, to not feel pressure to sing. I tell my students all the time, but to take this time to actually ask these questions and think about it. And uh, I encourage you, too, something else I tell my students is, like, sometimes we have things that happen in here they can get lost once we leave the door. So maybe, maybe do something outwardly to help facilitate this inward response. Sometimes there's like power in maybe talking with your neighbor of like, hey, there is something. You know, I could use prayer. There is something that's keeping me from being used in Jesus' story. Or just, hey, I think Jesus is calling me to this. 
We're meant to do this together. Or maybe it's, there's things that are keeping me from following Jesus and his story. And maybe it's, I need to go to the cross and just kneel for a little bit and say, Jesus, take these things so that I can be in your story. God delights in using the unexpected. He delights in using every single one of us. Let's pray. Father, this story reminds me of what Peter says in Acts 2. He recalls the prophet Joel, and he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit on those days. And they will prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. God, it is by the power of your Spirit that you are able and you so desire to use the unexpected, the young, the old, the men, the women, the slaves, free, and all nations, all ethnicities. We are so grateful that you would choose to use us. And we praise you in response. In Jesus' name, amen.